this piece was written, I think in like 2014 or something. And I, I decided to read it because I've never read it aloud before. And I thought that'd be fun. So um, a lot of this you're going to be familiar with if you grew up around uh, here. And um, this will just be a very short section of a, uh, the opening section of a much longer piece. Um, and the piece is actually really about a writer named Mary Lee Settle, um, who many of you have probably uh, heard of and read. Um, but the piece is kind of so uh, <laughs> um, long and winding that we won't really even hear about Mary Lee Settle in this section. <laughs> so uh, if you're interested, it's available online and you can read the rest and actually learn about Mary Lee Settle. <sighs> okay, the piece is called o Obula Land. Um, which is the, the title of one of Mary Lee Settle's novels in what she called the Beulah Quintet, five, five novels that trace the history of Southern West Virginia um, from England all the way to present day, practically. Um, part one, toward the transmontane. And it starts out with um, a little section of the hymn, O Beulah Land. O Beulah Land, sweet Beulah Land, as on thy highest mount I stand, I look away across the sea where mansions are prepared for me and view the shining glory shore, my heaven, my home forevermore. By his own memory and description, Edgar Page Stites wrote the hymn Beulah Land in 1876. When the chorus took shape, he was overcome, he recalled, and fell on my face. The song describes the borderland of heaven, thick with corn and wine, from whose mountaintops the speaker can clearly envision redemption, so close he is to its fulfillment. Despite the hymn's popularity, Stites's reward would be saved for glory. I have never received a cent for my songs, he wrote. Perhaps that is why they have had such wide popularity. Beulah is a land of refreshment on the outskirts of heaven for John Bunyan's pilgrims who rest there for a season, still yet to cross the river of death, but already within sight of the celestial city. It's a marginal hinterland of forever bird song, everlasting flowers, and unending light, as though heaven had overfilled with wonder and some majesty had spilled down the mountain taking shallow root in its soil. The poet William Blake, who Doug is modeling tonight on his feet, uh, mapped, ask me about it later, uh, mapped his own Beulah in moony shades and hills, a dark, sleepy cloud between the land of suffering and eternity, free from dispute and contradiction. Blake's Beulah is a kind of hollow heaven of pleasant numbness. They all got Beulah from the Bible, of course. In Isaiah, it's the new name that God gives to Jerusalem when the Jews come home from exile. Now that their hometown has been restored and their oppressors fallen, they receive all kinds of promises from God about how life would go from there on out. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hetzvabah, 
and thy land, Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married, according to the oracle. And later in the passage, Surely I will give no more thy corn to be food for thine enemies, and foreigners shall not drink thy new wine, for which thou hast labored. Almost heaven. That's what we call our home here in West Virginia. The almost of our heaven is both a space of longing and possibility, that forever resonance in which we're caught between seolum and infernum, enchantment and collapse, these booms and busts we have come to read as our given, not chosen inheritance. The systolic and diastolic pulses, the writer Mary Lee Settle would say, of the mountain kingdom. This throbbing mechanism has raked lines in our state's face and plants hunger in a memory of fullness. Within sight of the promised land, but cut off from its fulfillment, we look out across these formerly endless mountains. It can be hard to find a home in Beulah within its history of colonizing, romanticizing, missionizing, extraction, and resistance. When I returned to West Virginia, where land is both cheap and dear, I came home to see it through its death throes and be part of building its new life. I was living in Richmond and dreaming of the Transmontane when I decided to move back to the place whose fierce love I'd never gotten over. I'm from the Kanawha Valley, but chose to live an hour east in a county over in Fayette on the New River Gorge, which I've always known as a place of divine beauty, though blood runs through its fir the first memory it planted in me. I was five years old in 1987, standing on the steel arch bridge that spans the canyon when I watched a base jumper crumble on the rocks and rapids below, running red. When I found out years later that one of my ancestors was the first to ship the New River's mineral wealth by rail to market at the beginning of the coal's boom times, I felt out of place in my own blood. Upwards of 35,000 people lived in the gorge then. As I walk by the river today, I explore their lifetimes in the stony ruins that stud the woods. I record the news and histories of Fayette County in the local paper and on the radio, shuffling through layers of bygone and becoming. And although I can afford very little in the way of real estate, I search unceasingly for land and homes on websites and drives through the hills. I'm sitting in the general offices of the New River Company, famous for its white oak smokeless coal and coke in the former glory of the city of Mount Hope, at a slab of wood where clerks at the company store once cut bolts of cloth for miners' wives. Now I cut audio tape there at the little production studio I've set up in the wood-abundant window-gaping corner office. By the time Ebersol Gaines, the company's president and one-time leader of the National Coal Association, suffered a heart attack and fell to his death at the head of the stairwell outside my office in 1954, the New River Coal Company was beginning its decline from automation 
strip mining, and the advent of the diesel locomotive. The water tonight in the old building spouts its alarm in yellow and orange. I, pull, I put it through the filter to minor effect and open a can of shitty beer. Next door, three dogs run in the mud yard of a brick mansion that's seen better days. A federal floodplain buyout along the creek turns the tatters of coal camp houses to empty lots. And along Main Street, the windows of the old institutions are dimly reflective. A church with its pronouncement, our God delights in impossibilities. Mount Hope and towns like it across the coal fields have seen decline since the 1950s. Within the overall falling off, there have been spikes of prosperity, but now is not one of those times. The recent layoffs and mine closings, this was written kind of right after that huge slump that we saw. Um, the recent layoffs and mine closings would be viewed as another predictable bust, except for some indications that this time may be different. After a century and more of extraction, Appalachian's coal seams are thinner and harder to mine, markets shift west to the vast surface mines of the Powder River Basin, or the oil and gas boom fracturing the Midwest. The writings of climate change are on the wall, and at least under the current administration, old coal-burning power plants are being retired and emission standards tightened domestically. Clean water every day becomes more precious. The coal industry's estimated $40 million per year media campaigns, war on coal, friends of coal, faces of coal, that polarize central Appalachian communities on the coal issue during election season wind down for now. Among some activists and residents, there's growing hope that the hour may have finally come for his systemic change in the coal fields. In some circles, money and energy transfer from protest of industry practice to what is being called transition, a term for how we get to whatever will become after coal's monolithic exit. At a regional communications convening, we talk with one another about what we are calling it, this new space, as we fill the word with notions of justice, equity, progress, education, healing, and movement building, I can practically hear the phonemes creak under the weight. I vacillate on the turn in rhetoric. On the one hand, transition would seem to freshly embody the decades-long call for economic diversification in the coal fields of central Appalachia and many of my tightest held dreams of home. And yet its success might ultimately involve the monumental unraveling of entire systems, institutions, and cultures. Most suspect, it implies an inertness that downplays our ongoing adaptation. There is no beginning to this history, but one place to start is with salt. Section break. As the Freedom Day approached Booker T. Washington's plantation in Halesford, Virginia, the slaves felt its nearness and the singing in the fields grew clearer, louder, and more frequent. As the spiritual leap of the songs grew each day closer to freedom of the body in this world, Washington wrote, the songs gained truth and grace. 
But in the hours following emancipation's announcement on the steps of the plantation house, the wild rejoicing turned to gloom as the great responsibility of freedom descended. For the first time, the emancipated felt the weight of the necessary work to be done, the enterprise of finding a way to live that was at last their very own, building the institutions that had so long denied them access, acquiring a house, making a living, taking care of family. The elderly especially struggled to understand how they fit into this new world. The first step for them was finding a name. When animals seek salt based on true bodily deficiency, we call this the expression of salt need. Mom used to tell me about the great buffalo lick where the deer, elk, and bison came yearly to balance their internal chemistry in the upper Kanawha. I imagined solid river banks of hard white, their hooves taut crunch, their tongues along its tiny jaggednesses. But that's rock salt, and the lick was more like a briny mire, a couple hundred feet across and just at the river's edge, wide enough to accommodate the buffalo herds that rallied there in the summer before heading toward the thick Ohio grasses and the cane breaks of Kentucky. Three miles upriver from the great buffalo lick was the burning spring, a puddle of rainwater where bubbling gas could be lit, burning and burning until the rain or wind snuffed it out as freely as spirits and nearly as difficult to extinguish, George Washington wrote. When Washington, one of the region's earliest and most prominent white land speculators, heard of the bituminous spring, he acquired it, along with 30,000 acres straddling the Kanawha River. There is no richer or more valuable land in all that region, he wrote in his will. Multiple sources say that Washington gave, or meant to give, the spring to the public forever as a natural curiosity, but the grant was never recorded, and the land eventually sold. Before the war, Booker T. Washington's stepfather Wash Ferguson, was leased from his Virginia plantation to a salt manufacturer at Kanawha Salines and lived semi-independently among the caustic smokestacks that had grown up along the buffalo, around the Buffalo Lick and the Burning Spring with an industrial workforce of thousands, side by side with poor migratory whites working hell jobs on their way west, drinking and playing spots in shanties with men like Jeff Bell, AKA, the Conjure Man, a.k.a. Cut and Box, a.k.a. Tilt Hammer, saving up a little by working Sundays and heading home once a year at Christmas. About half of the 3,000 enslaved blacks in the Kanawha Valley were leased from plantations elsewhere. Slave leasing rates there were 150% of the going rate, plus hazard pay due to the danger of the work, but also the greater likelihood of self-emancipation. And I know that's probably a little awkward place to stop, but I'm going to do it uh, so, for, for, for matters of time. Uh, but yeah, the essay is available if you want it. Thank you.